Welcome back, listeners, to 2021, 10 Successful Years of the Historic Park Inn. I'm Melanie Mergen with the Globe Gazette, and returning to the show today is Pat Schultz, who joined us on our first episode, if you'll remember. She's previously been an executive director of Ride on the Park and is currently a member of its education committee. Good to have you back, Pat. Thank you. Thank you. This is such fun. I enjoyed the first time, so I'm glad to be back a second time. Great. And so what are we talking about today? Well, we, you know, I talked about Wright coming to Mason City. Scott talked about the design of the hotel and, uh, you know, the beautiful building that emerged as they were done. And I'm talking now about the early years of the bank and hotel. All right, take it away. One of the things that really was interesting is that when it originally opened, the Globe Gazette ran, ran a bunch of articles that, that were just glowing. I mean, made it sound like it was the best thing that had happened to Mason City since anyone founded it. When the, when the bank opened, you know, they, they talked about the statues and they, they talked about the, just the high ceilings and, and the whole description. And in the law offices, they said, you know, that Blythe and, and his partners were going to have the most comfortable suites in the town. And, um, you know, when it first opened, it had to be truly impressive. If you look at the law offices alone, you know, the center of, it was in the central waste of the building and, and on the second floor. And I think Scott probably described that. And they each had an office on the sides of a center where the receptionist sat with furniture for people who came in and, and, and the whole works. And Blythe had the largest office because he was the senior partner. And the other three had their rooms kind of making a square around the center. And there was a door to the law library. And that was maybe the most impressive part of the whole place. It had a fireplace. It had a table designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, and bookcases around the room, a bench, um, windows that you could see out. And maybe the most interesting part of the whole setup was they actually had, the the lawyers had a small balcony and they could stand up there and, you know, they're on the second floor. They could look down over Mason City. I, I picture them smoking their cigars, looking down over the city saying, things about the people they saw passing by. So, but uh, it was really amazing. And the interior of the City National Bank, wow, it had a one-story section um, to on the south side. And that section was for three, three purposes. There was, on one end was the president's office. In the middle was the head cashier's office. And at the other end was the board of directors meeting room. Now, the, the two on the ends had walls and doors. I mean, you couldn't see what they were doing all the time. The head cashier did need to be able to meet people. But the wall 
between your separated them from the rest of the bank was made of art glass. And, it, you know, that's pretty stunning and impressive. And in each of the rooms, the ceiling was also made of art glass. And so um, they, were, they were spectacular little spaces. The only thing I happen to think is, you know, we, we didn't have rights designed for the table. That was for the law library. But um, we had a picture. And, and it's one of the pictures you have displayed um, with this of the, the various rooms that were available. And there's that one picture that shows that board meeting room. And my reaction was, they had short meetings. They had to be claustrophobic. They were so jammed together. <laughs> it was, was funny. And of course, the whole big room, everything about it. Um, there's a picture that, that you have of the vault itself. And that picture of that vault drove me crazy. It has this big round door with an incredible mechanism for opening it. And so I thought, my gosh, people had to open this circular door, open it up and climb in, in order to get into the bank vault. That's ridiculous. What was right thinking? Well, then when I looked at the drawings, I saw that the vault was freestanding. All you had to do was walk around behind it and go in a regular door. Wow. Oh, the whole front was for show. Um, and then, of course, there was this structure in the middle um, that had four corners. And at the top of each of those four corners was a statue of um, the Roman god Mercury. Mercury was the god of finance in, in, in Rome. And so really appropriate. Um, Wright had designed it and had his sculptor friend named Richard Bach uh, do the design and had them cast for almost the middle of the room. It's like they create a box within the box of the whole room. And so then the around that box is a a lower brick wall. And when you walk in, that you walk up a few steps, and then the um, brick wall is probably just not, you know, just a little above stomach high, great, maybe chest high, is are the teller's cages, so that you can deal with them. And then, you know, it is so very high, but at the top of the room are the clerestory windows, and they're they're very narrow windows. I mean, they're not bright, big windows, but they would open. And one of the things that was extremely important to write was to allow as much light as possible into a room. I'm sure Scott told everyone that he built this to look like a vault, a safe place to keep money. And so there's no lower windows, but there are these upper clerestory windows at the very top of the room, and they open and close. And that's part of the reason he built that small, only one-story section for those three offices I talked about, is so there could be light and fresh air coming into the room on three and a half sides. So, you know, an interesting feature of, of just that room. But I just, you know, when I first saw the picture of the whole room as it stands, and I hope your listeners will look down to that picture, 
um, I, I thought people, when they walked in there the first time to go to the bank, it must have been just wow. Because um, even in the upper walls of underneath the clerestory windows and the columns, there were little pieces of art glass in the horizontal mortar. And so if the sun was shining, there was this gleaming reddish gold color up there. And so, I, like I said, I think when you walked into that for the first time, you were just kind of, oh, my gosh, wow. So, you know, it, was, it really was beautiful. The most interesting of the newspaper articles was the one that described the hotel. It was very lengthy. And it even contained the menu for the dinner that would be served the first weekend, full three-course menu, and it lists everything that was, was available for 50 cents. And while you ate, you could enjoy the music from above because there was a mezzanine um, between, that, that sort of divided things. Um, the, the big room was divided into two parts. And when you came into the lobby, there was a desk. And above the desk was a mezzanine, which connected the second floor. So guests didn't have to come all the way down if they wanted you know, to go across from one side of the hotel to the other. Because as Scott described, the, the whole uh, um, upper floors where the hotel rooms were, were in a U-shape. And so he wanted every room possible to have light. And so it was a very different and unique uh, setup. But you couldn't just walk down the halls to the other side. You had to take the mezzanine to go across. But in the evening, as you ate this wonderful 50-cent dinner, you could be entertained by the small stringed orchestra that played from the mezzanine above. Imagine, yes. Um, and I did some research into that and uh, found that one of the members of that orchestra, and I found a wonderful picture of them in all their tuxedos and everything, uh, was a man named John Kopecki. And John came to Mason City to play in the pit orchestras of the theater because at that time there were no sound of movies. And so when you had the dark movie, you know, or the black and white movie with no sound, um, you, you would have this orchestra playing appropriate music from the, from the pit. Well, this, isn't, this is sort of a, a stretch in what I'm talking about, but I think it's so interesting. John went on to start the uh, high school band at Clear Lake and at Garner and at one of the towns on the um, east side of Mason City. Um, I remember him, actually. Uh, he was quite young when he came, but when he was older, and I, I think in his 90s, he played a calliope in, on um, a truck in every 4th of July parade at Clear Lake. And that, that calliope, I think, is still out at uh, Pioneer Museum. Um, so forgive me for di diverting from the topic a little bit, but um, I just thought that that was wonderful that, you know, musicians came to Mason City to, to play in the pit bands, and then they played them for the diners 
who were down below. The room itself was gorgeous. You know, it had a skylight in it made of art glass designed by Wright. And the newspaper said, and it had areas for your intimate dining experience. There were booths on each side of the center of the restaurant where the tables were. And I guess the Globe thought that was a better place for intimacy than than the tables in the center of the room. So with that skylight, with the music, with uh, Art Glass and a couple of other places, um, for Mason City at that time, it must have been an amazing dining experience when you went into that hotel. Um, the first manager of a hotel, I was, I was trying to remember his name and my book is at the office, so I couldn't go look, but it was Diamond something. So I'm going to call him Diamond Jim, but I'm not sure the Jim is, is right. But he always wore a white suit, a white hat, and a bunch of diamond rings on his fingers. And apparently he was quite a character. And the hotel to describe the hotel, I just described the room downstairs. And, you know, we've described the way all the hotel rooms on the second and third floor went around in that U shape, um, you know, with the lobby out in front of, of the dining room behind it. Um, there were 40 some rooms, 43 or 47 rooms in the hotel. They were 10 by 10. Now, you think about that, 10 by 10, that's not very big. Um, they either had a shared bathroom with a one room next door, or they had to go out and down the hall to the bathroom. That was considered the European style. And it was very much the style at the time that, that Wright was um, designing. So um, I can't imagine. Well, yes, I can imagine a 10 by 10 room. Because in the hotel today, uh, when it was redone, they kept one 10 by 10 room, and, and we call it the historic room. And it is 10 by 10 with, you know, bed and, and um, attached bathroom. But the attached bathroom doesn't lead to another room. They made it into a little sitting room. So you have a little more comfort. But if you want the real experience of staying the way it was, in uh, 1910, when it opened, um, you can you can do it by staying in the historic room. Um, so he went to um, meetings. They had meetings for hotel managers about you know how to do it and how to attract customers. But because there were all those rooms, some of those rooms were not for guests; they were for the staff. And so um, the staff lived right there in the hotel and he had a dog and uh, that lived there with him and the dog was named penny and he was very fond of that dog so he is gone he has gone to one of these meetings and um penny follows a lady out the door well they don't really worry about it because penny has been out plenty and always comes back but penny doesn't come back for days and they actually have to put an ad in the newspaper because they know when he comes back and the dog is missing, he's going to be just furious. So they've got these ads in newspapers. And Penny has gone for days. Well, it turns out 
that Penny followed a lady who left, followed her to the train station, and got on the train with her. And Penny went with the lady to one of the towns east. It was Rockford or Rockwell or, or something. Uh, got off the train with the lady, but the lady sort of kicked him, the dog away, and the dog wandered around uh, in town for a while. But somebody finally saw the ad, and so they got the dog, which was friendly, and they stuck it all by itself back on the train and told the conductor. And that train got to Mason City, let the dog out, and it ran right back to the hotel. But it was a day too late. Diamond Jim was already back and had already been furious <laughs> with his uh, staff. But the newspaper ran an article, and the title of the article was a bad penny always comes back. <laughs> um, and so that was, you know, one of the, you know, newspapers at that time ran stories about, about the darndest thing. Absolutely. However, the big, beautiful room was not without problems. Mm. Let's put it this way. Wright was a wonderful designer, but he was not an engineer. And there were some structural things that he didn't, really understand i mean consider maybe scott told you this the original plans for the building were seven pages and that included some designs of some of the furniture um and and the uh, mercury statues and so it was just left to the builders to figure out the best way to come up with with what to do and uh wright had left someone there to supervise and one of the things that they made a mistake with was that beautiful art glass ceiling in the dining room. It must have started to leak in Iowa winters and, and rainstorms pretty early because at least by 1916, when we have a picture of the room, it's gone and it's a regular ceiling. Well, remember that the owners of the hotel were Blythe and Markley, the two lawyers who you know, had their offices there and who were on the board of the City National Bank. And so when they had them taken out, Blythe just had them moved to his house and put into the ceiling of a sunroom there. And there they stayed for almost, well, not, what, 85, 90 years. Yeah. And uh, so that was one of the things. Then they must have decided to move the dining room over to the West Bay of the, um, the room that originally they thought that was going to be a newspaper office, but it never happened. And I think that's wonderful. The idea, the plan had been that the press was going to be in the basement and the newspaper office was going to be in that room on the West side of the first floor. Well, you're too young to have ever heard a linotype operating or an old printing press operating. It's a good thing that that newspaper built its own building because those things running in the days of newspapers then would have shook that building apart. And if they came out with a morning edition and it ran all night, the guests above them wouldn't have gotten a wink of sleep. So it's a good thing that that, that didn't happen. But they decided to open it up into one big room and they took out the mezzanine as well. And so the lobby of the hotel ended up taking up all of that first floor space. 
there was um, on in the uh, East Wing, there was a tobacco store and, and cigar store. And behind it was a billiards parlor. Um, and we love when we give tours. You know, it's, um, they called it a billiards parlor. But, um, you know, there's a difference between a billiards table and a pool table. And so we don't know. We assume it was maybe really billiards. But when we give tours, because there was a billiards room always in the building for years, we put one in the west wing of the basement. And we always tell people, of course, you know, this is River City. And River City's got a problem. And it rhymes with cool. And it's pool. And so we throw a little Meredith Wilson into the um, uh, act when we, when we do that. Um, there were some other remarkable things about it. The first telephone system in Mason City had all its wiring in the wall in the second floor of the hotel. And so, um, you know, an interesting place to, to put it. Um, one of the other things that I find fascinating is Wright's awareness of light and, and, and air in rooms. And in all of those hotel rooms, the doors were really unusual. They were louvered and you could, you could slide them so that there was a tiny opening between each section of a, you know, in a door, there'd be about, you know, a bunch of these and you could slide them open. And if you had an open window, you could get air circulation through the room. And um, it, I've never even heard or seen of that system of making a door before. So everything he did was, was unique and, and, and as far as I'm concerned, pretty wonderful. Of course, I'm a little prejudiced. After it had been open for a while, there was an article in the newspaper an announcing, Blythe announcing that they had put a whole new heating system in that would not produce as much pollution and smoke into the city. And he was very proud of that. And so the article went to some length to describe this new and newly invented heating system that was going to be so good for Mason City. Unfortunately, however, Blythe and Markley had to make a difficult decision. Here they had these wonderful offices that they had literally had designed just for them. But their biggest client was the Denison Cement or the Brick and Tile Company. All right. And that company, there was a new building that went up in Mason City, and it was called the MBA building, which has to do with a fraternal order. And it was even when it was opened, it was dedicated by the former president of the United States. And, and it was a big deal. Well, Denison was a big deal. He invented farm dial. And when you consider that, I mean, what a difference to farming that made. You could farm wet areas that you had never been able to farm before. And his company became the largest producer of farm tile in the whole world. And so he located his office in this big, I think it's seven or eight story building. And today we call it the brick and tile building. 
And because they wanted to be closer to this huge major client, they moved out of their offices and down into what we now call the brick and tile building. And that was, was early. And so by about 1916, um, just a matter of six years after the, the building was opened, the lawyers moved out and they took out the art glass and they took out the mezzanine and made some major changes. I have to laugh because Wright never came back to see the building. Just as the plans were in and building was getting started, he left William Drummond behind, one of his associates from Oak Park, where he had his studio, um, to supervise the building of it. And he eloped to Europe. He called it eloping, never mind that he was married with six children, to Europe with Mima Cheney who was the wife of a former client for whom he designed a home. And um, so he was gone. And if he had seen what they did to his building and, and to the, you know, remove that beautiful art glass and took out that mezzanine and the lawyers had already been, I can only imagine the explosion that would have been Frank Lloyd Wright. Later on, they, he wrote to uh, Markley, um, and there is a letter that says he might consider returning to Mason City, and he had stayed with the Markleys when he was there before, and so he indicated he might want to come back. By that time, even more changes had been made, and I hope he never came back, because he would probably have been in favor of knocking the whole building down at that point. There were um, a lot of other businesses in the building because the third floor of the hotel, uh, not the third floor of the hotel, the top floor of the bank, which was really the second floor, even though it was a three-story height because the main banking room was two stories high, had offices for rent. And and there were um, many locals who were um, anxious to have their offices in this new building that was getting all of this attention. And in the um, lower level, in the basement level, there were retail spaces. And there was a barber shop down there and various things over the years. Um, and so then especially, you know, you know, then they moved out the llama and so they could rent out that beautiful law office space. And they had lots of, lots of uh, spaces to, to deal with. But those significant changes, but there were lots of other uh, things in it. Like I said, there they ended up with a restaurant to the west wing of the hotel, and they never ran it themselves again. Um, it was always leased to someone else to run a restaurant in that spot. Um, and I told you about the cigar and smoke shop that was there, and there there were a variety of things that were there over the years. The bank did extremely well in its early years. They must have been very happy with the financial success that it was having. Interestingly, there was another bank just down the street, the commercial bank. And the shareholders in the commercial bank were almost identical to the shareholders in the City National Bank. So, you know, why it was that they uh, 
they were combined like that. Um, I, I don't know, but they were making money in both places. But they had decided that they had the better building there on the corner and they were going to change the banking room. I, I'll bet they were going to make it larger. I'll bet they were going to take out the mercury statues in the middle and do all kinds of things. But they were going to combine with the commercial bank and put it all into one, one, one place. And so they were, uh, while the work was being done, their business was actually located down in the commercial bank, uh, down the street. And that's where I'm going to stop because that's where the next major change came about is while they were down in, in the other bank and their bank was being remodeled. Things were going to change, not just in Mason City, but all across Iowa, all across the United States, uh, right after World War I. And so that's a good stopping place. And for me to allow someone on the next podcast to take over the story about what happened next. Ooh, what a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, once again, thanks for joining us, Pat. Well, that's it for this episode. Join us again next month as we continue celebrating 10 successful years of the historic park in all throughout 2021.